right into it. Uh, where have we been? Luke chapter 3. This Christmas season, more traditionally in the church world, is referred to Advent season. And the word Advent really just is the Latin word for the arrival or the coming of Jesus. And when we read the Bible, we find that Jesus comes uh, not just in a manger, that, that is the chief uh, reason we celebrate Advent this time of year, but Advent can also refer to his arrival in ministry uh, when he comes as the messianic king uh, to launch God's kingdom on earth. And then Advent can also reference what we now refer to as the second coming for when Jesus comes back once and for all and sets this world to rights. But over Christmas this year, we've kind of honed in on that middle portion where before Jesus started his messianic ministry, God sends a prophet before him, John the Baptist, who draws crowds to him. And these crowds are coming in what the Bible says, repentance. That they're coming with heart change, wanting to see what is to come. And so as they're coming to John the Baptist, they ask him in Luke chapter 3, verse 10, what should we do, the crowds were asking him. And so John replied to them and said, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized, and they said, teacher, what should we do? And he told them, don't collect any more than what you've been authorized. And some soldiers also questioned him, what should we do? And he said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation, but to be satisfied with your wages. So if we could take these three things, kind of insert a little bit in, but extrapolate out just some generic pictures, what we've come to this Christmas season is that if we want to see Jesus, if we want to prepare our hearts for Jesus, by the words of John the Baptist, well, to those who have plenty, simplify and share. And to those who are rich, be mindfully generous. And to those in power, do justice. So it's that final one that we'll focus on today, but it begs the question, what on earth is justice? I've talked a lot about my college years being here, but I've never actually, I don't think I've shown you a picture. This is a kind of sky view of the university I attended. Uh, and it is just, I have so many fond memories. Also, it's Tennessee, so it's green. Do you, guys, you guys ever seen that color before? I know, it's, it's amazing. It's green. Uh, right across, if you kind of look towards the, the top end of the picture, you'll notice all these woods. Uh, those, there's mountain bike trails every single day after class. I would go take my bike across, and I would bike four or five miles of just wooded trails, get out, listen to music. Uh, I have such amazing memories of standing around and just going outside into the quads and people playing ultimate frisbee and so just stopping and I don't have anything better to do. Let's play ultimate frisbee or sitting in a specialized library entirely centered upon theology where every single book was just a more expansive knowledge of the things that I was studying or spending time daily with expert theologians teaching the things they were passionate about. Uh, it was four years of my life and it's something that I hold very, very dear but one night uh, when I was there, I was recruited by one of my professors to help with a ministry his church hosted called A Room in the Inn. And the whole premise of the ministry was that uh, once per month, they would uh, go out and find help from local community members uh, to house homeless people for one night. Uh, that the church would take that on, they would find a place where they could house them, they would bring food and all of this other stuff. But in order for uh, Union to house that event, Union required at least someone to be present with those men. And my professor so kindly thought of me that night 
that I should go and spend the night with these guys. So Friday night, I show up in the baseball field house, turf ground. Uh, One line of this big room is filled with cots. The other one has plastic folding tables complete with veggie trays and fruit trays and um, little help bags of deodorant and non-perishable foods. So I uh, make my way with my backpack, a couple books I was reading, and a sleeping bag, and try to pick the cot that has the least amount of stains on it, because that seemed most rational to me, and then proceeded to awkwardly make my way over to this group of about 12 to 15 homeless men uh, watching an old rerun of a football game that I was trying to have conversations with, but it was clear they were far more interested in the old football game than they were this 19-year-old and what he might have to say. Spent a few hours there. Eventually, my professor and his small group from his church showed up. They brought a platter of old burgers and some soggy French fries, and we dished up and sat around tables. I watched as the guy next to me proceeded to cut his hamburger up into little pieces and then look at me through a mostly toothless grin and say, I sure love hamburgers, but they're really hard to eat when you ain't got no teeth. To which I gave a courtesy laugh and Observed him pouring hot sauce all over his food and observed, man, you must sure love hot sauce. And his response was, well, drugs kill your taste buds, so I can't taste anything anymore. So I've learned hot sauce is about the only thing I can taste. So at least some flavor is better than no flavor. And we continued through the night and having side conversations, playing some dominoes and cards. And eventually it came time to go to bed. So I got on my cot and spent what was mostly a sleepless night. Uh, in the midst of what was the loudest snoring I have ever heard in my life in that room that night. My professor showed up the next morning with the small group again, bringing breakfast casseroles, and I ate with those men and made my way out. My professor caught me on the way out, and he said, Philip, how how did last night go? I said, you know, Dr. Moore, it was really interesting. Um, Most of those men, I I kind of expected them to be vagabonds just traveling through, but, but they almost all told me that they're from Jackson, Tennessee, that they grew up in this town and they've lived almost their entire lives in this town. And it's just really interesting because I've lived here for almost three years now and I've never seen any of them. And I'll never forget what my professor responded to me after that point. He looked at me and he said, you know, one of the greatest things about a secure campus is that you can learn about theology and Jesus without distractions or worries that the presence of men like these typically bring. But one of the worst things about a secure campus that you can is that you can learn about theology and Jesus without the distractions and worries that presence of men like these typically bring. In essence, Philip, we've created a really safe bubble for you to live in here at Union because we're responsible for your well-being and your growth. But Philip, that bubble of security that you've lived in does not negate the heartbreaking atrocities outside. Being sheltered and ignorant to the problem does not mean the problem has gone away. But for the history of humanity, the tendency has almost always been for the the affluent to build safe and secure areas in order to, and sometimes quite literally, wall off access to those who are maybe a little bit less affluent. This isn't unique to any particular culture. It's just really seen more as an accepted norm than some sort of moral travesty or problem circumstances. And it makes sense, right? I mean, it's a, it's a complicated reality. And it's one that I'm very aware of when I'm with my son and there's someone that seems like they might be a little bit sketchy. And my primary objective as a father right now is to protect him. And so I get it. 
And it's far more complex than one night of a 19-year-old not really sleeping on a cot next to 15 other homeless men could ever fix. And while I can absolutely affirm the difficulties and complexities of this reality that we live in, if I'm to stand on Scripture and read it for what it says, there's one thing I can't do, and that's ignore what God has called us to do in these situations. Because when the Bible envisions the world according to the blueprint of what God has designed, or when it calls Israel to live in accordance to these statutes and principles and laws, the theme of what we call justice surfaces again and again and again and again. That God envisions a world where the powerful and affluent go out of their way to care for the fatherless, the widow, the poor, and the immigrant. This is not a fringe concept in the Bible. In fact, from the commands of the Torah, Exodus chapter 22. By the way, I'm going to reference a lot of verses today. I'm not going to put them all up on the screen or call you to turn there. If you want to go ahead and go to Job 29, that's our next kind of deep stopping point. But I'm just going to give you some scripture as we talk through this. From the commands of the Torah, Exodus 22, you must not exploit the immigrant or oppress him since you were immigrants in the land of Egypt. You must not mistreat the widow or the fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, you will no doubt, they will no doubt cry out to me, and I will certainly hear their cries. My anger will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. And if you send silver to my people, to the poor person among you, you must not be like creditors to them, but you must not charge them interest. From that to the wisdom literature of Psalms and Proverbs, chapters like Psalm 146, God remains faithful forever, executing justice for the exploited. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoner. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind and raises those who are oppressed. The Lord loves the righteous. He protects the immigrant. He helps the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. All the way to the prophets, to Zechariah chapter 7, verse 10. Don't oppress the widow or the fatherless or the resident alien or the poor. Do not plot evil in your hearts against one another. Author after author after author for millennia beating the same drum. It's not a fringe concept. The Bible calls those who would know and follow God to do justice. And if we were to just put some form of definition on that, we might come to something like do justice by courageously making other people's problems your problems or to suffer on behalf of the suffering. Do justice by courageously making other people's problems your problems and suffering on behalf of the suffering. And why would you say, why, Philip, would we do something like that? And the biggest reason the Bible gives is because that's who God is. That's Yahweh. That one of the main worship mantras throughout the Old Testament, as the Old Testament prophets and hymn writers and psalm writers calls to God and observes who he is, they'll say things like Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And that probably comes as a shock to none of you if you've grown up in church. Because it's still a mantra we carry with us on a day-to-day basis. If I stand up here and I say, we serve a justice, a God of justice. God is just. Many of you don't blink an eye at that. You've heard it your whole life. 
I think the problem that we encounter, though, is so often when we hear God is just, the image that comes to our mind is that of God in a judge gown and maybe one of those like powdered wigs. I don't picture that, but maybe you picture that. And a gavel ready to declare guilty or righteous at his pounding of the gavel. And that is in the Bible. I'm not trying to discredit that reality. But I think that misunderstands what the Old Testament is trying to get at when it keeps making the claim God is a God of righteousness and justice. So I got to do a little bit of Hebrew for you. I know you're super interested in the Hebrew, but the first is the word mishpat. Can you say mishpat? Mishpat, that's good. That is the Hebrew word that most often gets translated as justice. And I'm being very generic here because it's obviously a little bit bigger than just this. But more often than not, mishpat is in reference to what we would call rectifying justice or retributive justice. Uh, Meaning mishpat is the punishing of the iniquities of evildoers. It's setting straight and helping those who are vulnerable. That is mishpat in the world. And the challenge of that today, though, is that in a culture with really clearly defined justice system... It's really not ever my job or your job to enact mishpat in courtrooms. Um, Maybe a select few of you have that job as a judge or a lawyer and you live in that world. But for many of us, that's not the world we live in. We are not here to enact mishpat in courtrooms. We have specially designated experts to deal with that. So does that mean we're just off the hook? Cool. We don't have to worry about mishpat. No justice for us. We get to show up to church and not worry anything about it. No, the Hebrew Bible actually doesn't allow that because there's another word that is over and over coupled with this word mishpat. It's the word tzedekah. Can you say tzedekah? Okay, you're doing great. Tzedekah. Tzedekah almost always gets translated righteous, but it's a world that has almost been held hostage by verticality. And what I mean that is when we hear righteous, the first definition that comes to our mind usually is something along the lines of right relationship with God. And again, that is right, but the word tzedekah doesn't have that phrase with God on the end. It just simply means right relationship. So tzedakah does exist when God declares me righteous through the forgiveness of Jesus, but tzedakah always then calls me to right relationship this way. Uh, Old Testament scholar Alec Moitier talks about this, and he explains that tzedakah is those in right relationship with God, therefore committed to putting right all other relationships in life. Meaning, God is not only righteous just in how he deals with sins and iniquities and things like that. God is righteous and just in how he chooses and calls out the oppressed and the vulnerable, redeeming and repurposing them for his action to go and to love this world, making these people in his likeness, making them like he is, tzedakah. So while we hear God is just and we picture God on a judge's stand with his gavel, I think if we could somehow build a time machine and go back to the Old Testament and pull out one of the prophets and say, what does it mean that you say God is tzedekah? They would far more likely envision, or you say God is just, envision a God that rescues the orphan and that cares for the widow and that feeds the poor and that houses the immigrant. And then calls Israel to do likewise. This is exactly what God then instills into Israel. It's this nation that he calls out of, namely this marginalized, oppressed slaves in Egypt that he then rescues and repurposes and then calls them to live out the exact same ideals. 
So Deuteronomy chapter 4, as Moses is talking to the Israelites from God, he says, look, I've taught you statues and ordinances as the Lord my God has commanded to me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to possess. Carefully follow them. For this will show your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the peoples. And when they hear about all these statues, they'll say, This great nation, Israel, is indeed a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God as near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call to him? It is vertical, Sedeca. And what great nation has Sedeca, righteous statutes and ordinances? Like this entire law I set before you today. What is it that Moses interprets as making this nation righteous, just, sedeka, mishpat? Well, well, it's the tabernacle, and it's worship rituals, and it's the sacrificial system, and it's caring for the poor through the harvesting of portions of the crop and leaving other portions of the crop for the needy. It's loving the widow and orphan by Ensuring she has food and shelter. It's ensuring the immigrant catches glimpses of Yahweh as they're treated when they pass through. This is Mishpat. This is Sadeka. This is what the Bible considers to be the inseparable reality of those who live following God. But I think one of the places we see this most clearly is in the book of Job. So if you haven't already, go to Job chapter 29. Job is a very contextually interesting book. Many scholars think that Job is the uh, oldest book in the entire Old Testament. Um, that, that is this very, very old book. And that's because Job makes no formal reference to the nation of Israel or, or to any sort of covenant that God has made, which would perhaps place Job before uh, the calling of Abraham or Abram even. Uh, but so we're, we're left to wonder... Where does Job get his morality from? If Job lives before the Torah is written, if he exists before all of these statutes and righteous laws are given, where does Job find his morality? Because a big portion of the book is that Job begins to suffer as everything. Satan lays waste to everything he owns. And when his friends come in and they're trying to explain why this may have happened, the accusation that comes over and over again is, Job, you must have sinned somewhere, man. I mean, all of this has to be indicative of some sin in your life. And so in Job 29, he's defending himself to his friends, and he's giving them his resume of morality. And he's saying, no, 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 I've not sinned. I'm a moral person. I've lived by these statutes. But in this reference in Job 29, we actually don't find references to sacrifice or prayer or any sort of vertical personal devotion. For Job, his righteousness isn't noted in some relationship with God, but it's noted in his relationship with people, particularly how he treats the poor, the orphan, the widow, and what Job calls the stranger, but could be translated immigrant. So Job chapter 29, verse 11, when they heard me, this is Job speaking, they blessed me. When the people in the town, when I went out, when they heard me, they blessed me. When they saw me, they spoke well of me. Why? For I rescued the poor who cried out for help, and the fatherless child who had no one to support him. The dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart rejoice by clothing myself in tzedakah, righteousness. It enveloped me. My just decision, mishpat, were like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. 
I examined the case of the stranger. I shattered the fangs of the unjust, and I snatched the prey away from his teeth. Job makes these observations saying, my morality is not just found in right relationship with God, but it's played out in right relationship with my neighbor, particularly those who are less affluent and more needy than I am. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor. Over and over and over again. And so as God calls Israel to this, as he envisions his nation to be this people that uh, would never even actually need mishpah. That's the idea, right? Because if we all live in tzedakah, mishpah's never necessary. There's no need for retributive, retributive justice when we all actually live in right relationship with one another. This is God's vision for Israel, that Israel would have it set up so that they live so into this that the world would notice it and they'll say there's something different about the way they live. And as we read through the Old Testament, the question pops back up, how did they do? Have you read the Old Testament? It's pretty clear. The answer is not good. Over and over. They get the traditions nailed down correctly at times. They build a temple where they follow sacrificial law to a T and uh, they upkeep the more personal aspects of sadaka from time to time. They attend service at the right time, and they dress the right ways, and they eat the right foods and avoid the wrong foods. And while there was a concerning problem of worshiping other gods that gets called out from place to place, the critique that seems to come out most often in the prophets is that the prophets come to Israel and they say, you've kept the commands, but you've not done justice. So we come to passages like Amos chapter 5, where God says through Amos, I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. And that in itself is really pointed. And so I'm, I'm sorry just to go in with a knife. But when Eugene Peterson takes this verse and translates it into the message, he is not sorry for going in with a knife. He writes it this way. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religious projects your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When's the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That is what I want. That is all I want. You see, the very nation that was meant to be the example of justice and righteousness to the world themselves are entrapped by the same sin that entraps the rest of the world over and over. But lingering amidst all of these critiques and the prophets are phrases like in Isaiah 42 that someone would come. A king from David would be on the horizon and the spirit of God would rest on him and he would establish justice. Or Isaiah 11 that he would come and righteousness would be his belt. But remember, when we hear these terms righteous and justice, don't just think God in a courtroom with a gavel, but God among the poor and the widow and the orphaned and the immigrant. 
And so as this Messiah begins to arrive on the scene, one of the core beliefs that we hold to, that the Bible teaches, is that Jesus is, in fact, God in flesh. That's John 1.1, John 1.14. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then verse 14, and the Word took on flesh. Do you understand what that means? That means the author of all eternity has full rights to write himself into this story however he pleases. That he has full authority to insert himself into the story however Jesus wants to insert himself in. He could have written a story where he came to be born in a palace of lavish riches in the world. And instead, what we celebrate tomorrow, he comes to be born of a peasant. From backwoods, nowhere Israel. Birthed alongside the animals, laid in a feeding trough. Visited first by lowly, poor shepherds, then later rich, wealthy immigrants, then forced to flee to Egypt where he and his family become literal refugee immigrants. Born at a time where Israel was an oppressed minority underneath the Roman occupation, whose father, according to most uh, scholars reading the Bible, Joseph, seemingly dies sometime in his teenage years because while he shows up at the story where Jesus stays at the temple about 12, Joseph never shows back up again. And if that's true, it would render Jesus in his teenage years an orphan, a fatherless, and his mother a widow. And this is the Jesus the Bible gives us. This is the messianic king of the world. The word who was with God takes on flesh. The glory of God lethal even for Moses to look at when Moses says, can I see who you are? And he says, you can only see the back of me, Moses. You would die. Takes on a body that stinks when he doesn't wash it. Hair that grows greasy over time. Feet that would develop calluses and blisters and cuts and grow tired of walking. Hands that would home splinters when he was woodworking. Bones that would crack when he stand up. A back that grew tired. This is Emmanuel, God with us. This is God just and righteous. Why on earth would he do that? Why is this the means by which Jesus would enter in this time of year, that that he would offer salvation? And the Bible offers a lot to say, but just three verses for your consideration. One is in Hebrews 4.15 that the author observes, "For, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. You see, it proves true to say God is just. It proves just as true to say Jesus is just because Jesus is God. But then to take that phrase, Jesus is just, and ask why, well, because he makes our problems his problems, and he suffers on behalf of us the suffering. Or we could press in deeper to the core message of what we call the gospel in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, that by his poverty you might become rich. Or, or a few chapters prior in 2 Corinthians 5, that God made Jesus the one who did not know sin to be sin for us that we might be called his righteousness. And again, remember, not just this. Yes, this, sadaka, righteousness, but this, righteousness. 
And how does Jesus go about doing that? We'll see the most stunning revelation of Jesus' justice. is not the glory of God taken on flesh, born next to a goat and a sheep. That is part of it. But the most stunning revelation of Jesus' justice and righteousness is the glory of God taken on flesh to be pierced and hung on a common criminal's cross. The breath that in Genesis 1 was just uniquely breathed into Adam, made in God's image, then breathed out in death, where he pays the price that you and I deserved. That we can declare once and for all that our God is a God of justice and righteousness, and it's that justice that brought him to earth to buy us back from our debtor, from evil and sin and death, to pay the price to set us free, to make our problems his problems, and to suffer on behalf of us the suffering. And with that, we land all the way back in Luke chapter 3. As John is trying to prepare the hearts of these people that are looking for the Messiah, they ask the question, what should we do? And we land with that same question. Given all of this, what should we do? And there's some great ways to answer that. Repentance is a wonderful way. The other way I think we tend to answer that is is worship. That the proper response when we see Jesus correctly as to who he is and what he's done is that we worship him. And I want to take that answer and propose that that is the correct answer and repentance is a part of worship. But so often when we hear worship, the the thing that we land at is that worship is applause. That that's what the, it's to say, yay, Jesus. And that's great. And that's a part of it. But I think the Bible sees worship far more as imitation than it does applause. So often we think that our proper response to Jesus is mere applause, as if revival is the stadium of people chanting the name of Jesus. And while that absolutely is a truth, and Jesus does affirm that where two or people are, he's gathered there too. Like, welcome, Jesus is here today. That's part of it. He also says, for when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you took care of me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And the disciple says, when did we do any of that? You know what he says. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, you've done for me. You see, Jesus is both found in the worship service and in the eyes of the poor and the needy and in the company of the hurting, and at the table of the hungry. And might it be that we've missed revivals because we keep expecting that the revival is going to look like a packed out church when really what revival is going to look like is a meal with someone that desperately needs to eat. Is it maybe that we keep thinking God's going to work this way and God says, I've been over here the whole time, come find me. I'm with the needy. I'm with the addicted. I'm with the struggling. Come find me. Might it be that creating wonderful, secure places, such as a church or a community where we can learn and grow without distractions or worries or difficulties of broken and needy people, is a fair and great thing, an amazing thing. 
But that no matter how big we build the walls and dig the trenches, blocking view of the people outside, we cannot erase the reality that there are people suffering outside. That in essence, what my professor said to me 10 years ago, Philip, we've created a safe and secure bubble for you to live in because we're responsible for your well-being and growth. But Philip, that bubble of security does not negate the heartbreaking atrocities outside. Being sheltered and ignorant to the problem does not mean the problem goes away. So if we trace back then to the early church, and we start to ask, well, how did the early church go about the mission? How did they go about seeking revival? How did they go about seeing the Spirit move? That we find things that not long after the apostolic age, in the year 125 AD, guys like Aristides wrote a letter saying this. And there is among the Christians, the, the church, uh, if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, if the church doesn't have any food to give, well, they fast two or three days in order to supply the need from their lack of food. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care, living justly as the Lord commanded them. Or we even go back to the churches in the 18th and 19th century that looks at the slave trade and becomes convinced that this is not what God would ever have established for those created in his image, and we have to fight back against it. And knowing that they really had not enough power to fight back legislatively, the thing that they did was just start pulling their money together and going to slave trade auctions where they could just buy a slave and then set them free. And this is what we're going to do. You guys want to donate money? I'm going to go to this auction, and everyone that I can afford, I'm buying and I'm setting them free. Because that's what the church does. And I understand that the church history that we see is a complex one, and there's definitely some dark spots that we don't often talk about. But when Christ's bride has gotten it right, in the history of the church, when she's done what she was supposed to do, well, hospitals are not the inventions of doctors. Hospitals are the inventions of Christians. And orphanages and foster care facilities are named today because of what this church did 100 years ago. That's not just some abstract concept. That's in the DNA of this church, that public schools were church-ran, colleges were church-planted. Sunday school was started because in a time where not every kid was afforded the right to go and learn, this church has said, you can come here on Sunday mornings and we'll teach you to read and write. What we call soup kitchens, the early church just called love feasts. And on this side, it feels romantic. And it's easy to look at that and say, oh man, could you just imagine what it would be like if we waltzed out into Portales and we set the oppressed free? Could you imagine how great it would be and all the good stories we would tell? And I would just lean into that and say, it's not. In fact, far more often it's messy and it's hard and it's a headache and it's a heartache. It's a risk, it's a liability. So why on earth do it? Over and over again in the Old Testament, when God is calling Israel to these types of rules, we talked about this last week, he'll call them to some rule of generosity and kindness and justice, and then he follows that rule with, remember how I saved you from Egypt. 
remember. And then they institute this every year practice of Passover where they're going to come together and eat the meal to remind themselves of where they came from and what God did to set them free. So it only makes sense then that when Jesus shows up to have his final Passover meal with his disciples, what's the command? Remember. But this time he begins to repurpose it. Because it's not remember what happened at Passover, it's remember what's soon to happen. That this bread is my body broken for you. And when you partake, you do it in remembrance of me. That, that this wine, this grape juice, this, this drink is a reminder of my blood that's been shed for your sins. So when you partake, do it in remembrance of me. But so often we think that that term remembrance is just a mental headspace. So as long as we remember, we're fine. But over and over again, the Bible calls us to remember so that we could go live. It is always remember for the sake of action. We remember to do justice, that God has not just set us free from those sins that everyone out there might deal with, but man, he has set us free to go out to them and give them that same freedom. Remember. So as we close out this this morning, we're going to do things a little bit differently. I'm not, I'm not going to have Wayne come up and sing and us to stand around for 45 seconds or a minute or anything like that. I just want to go straight to this. But as we go to this, I want you just to spend a few minutes praying about that remembrance. To think through, who would you be if Jesus not rescued you? What type of life would you live? How lost would you be? Because if we understand what the Bible is telling us correctly, there is actually not much difference between me and the person that's out there poor, needy, and addicted. Because the only thing that really redeems is what Jesus has done in my life. This is what we remember. And as you remember this in his death, burial, and resurrection, to continually ask the question, so what do we do with it? How do we make other people's problems our problems? How do we suffer on behalf of the suffering? I'm going to ask Miss Deanna to come to the organ and the ushers to come forward and uh, for the rest of you just to go to the throne of God with me as we begin this time in prayer. Father God, we come to you understanding that you are a just God. And God, while you are absolutely just in the courtroom, declaring sin what it is and giving the right punishment of that as death, you are also just in that you have provided a way to come into us, the broken, the lost, the needy, the poor, and to restore us back to you. And God, if there's anyone in here this morning that doesn't know of that restoration, would you just grab their hearts to let this be the moment that they come to declare you Lord and you would restore them. But God, for those of us that have known that for years, would you remind us as we remember what you've done for us, that what you've done is not just restore us to a light relationship with God, but to offer right relationships to the world around us. God, call to mind how we can make other people's problems our problem. Call to mind how we can suffer on behalf of the suffering. It's in Jesus' name we pray.